Welcome to episode 209 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. The U.S. Inflation Reduction Act is the cornerstone of American clean energy industrial policy and has been wildly successful at stimulating investment in battery plants, solar panel manufacturing, and other clean energy industries. Some Canadian companies are even being lured south by the generous incentives. We're seeing you know, solar panel uh, components. One of a Canadian company just announced about $150 million investment in the U.S. And others are pressuring the Canadian government to move more quickly on already promised uh, policies like carbon contracts for a difference. So I'm going to talk to Clean Prosperity Director of Policy and Strategy, Brendan Frank, about that. So welcome to the interview, Brendan. Great to be with you, Markham. Look, when we're going to get to the, the, the specifics, the policy specifics, but I think this conversation needs some context because I, I interviewed, for instance, Scott Graybill, who is the CEO of a company called Kalux in uh, California. And they make panels, uh, solar panels that uh, incorporate perovskite. And I asked him about the IRA. And he said, great program, really well designed. It's exactly what we need. We're working with the, you know, the government officials to get this underway. It's going to be a big boost to our expansion plans. And last year, I, I interviewed Bentley Allen. Uh, from the Transition Accelerator, Dr. Bentley Allen. And we were talking about Canadian industrial policy. And he said, you know what? Canadian federal government officials like in finance have forgotten how to do it. There's just no institutional memory in Ottawa about how to craft industrial policy, particularly modern industrial policy, which is different than the way we used to do it 40, 50, 60 years ago. And I think that's a major strategic difference here. The Americans know what they want. They've got very, very uh, good industrial policies. And it's not just the IRA. There's a whole slew of them, the Infrastructure Act, the CHIPS Act, on and on. And so they've got incredibly generous. I mean, this could be well over a trillion dollars that the Americans put into these kind of policies over the next year, depending on how they get taken advantage of. And, and we're just muddling through again. It's like it's part, it's built, it's baked into the cake. Whatever Canada does, it doesn't do it with confidence, with a clear view of the goal in, in sight. It kind of muddles through. That's my take on it. Would you agree or disagree? So I think you're right, Markham, to say that the U.S. has what is what you could consider a coherent modern industrial strategy. And the Inflation Reduction Act, as you pointed out, has a suite of generous incentives but it goes far beyond that. It's not just offering subsidies for whoever wants them. It is actually strategically handing out pots of money to, for instance, direct air capture facilities in the Gulf Coast. We just saw $7 billion for seven hydrogen hubs across the country. We're starting to see manufacturing belts emerge uh, in Michigan, in the Southeast, in the U.S. Southwest. And you can actually see it's the emissions reductions are, are a nice feature of the Inflation Reduction Act, but the U.S. clearly sees clean energy as a vehicle, an engine for growth in the 21st century. And I'm not sure Canada is thinking about it in quite the same way. Yeah, I would I would that you've put your finger right on the pulse of the or, you know, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, I need some more uh, better cliches, but we'll use this one for, for now. You hit the nail right on the head. 
Canada really doesn't know what it wants. I mean, we kind of, you know, I, I've interviewed uh, Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, and we talked about this. And, you know, uh, and last, it was just a year ago, um, Finance Minister Christian Freeland was in Edmonton, and she said, we're, gonna, we're going to implement in muscular industrial policy. We're really, you know, you know, very much we're going to imitate the U.S. or emulate the U.S. We're we're gonna we're really going after this, and well, you know, we're kind of now the ninety-eight pound weakling of clean energy industry. So I think it's kind of it's our strategic vision, and it's our ability to of our politicians to articulate that strategic vision. That's a major difference between us and the United States right now, in my opinion. Well, the frustrating part is that Canada actually has a lot of the tools that it needs to put together a coherent industrial strategy and actually drive a lot of the investments that we are going to need, not only to fulfill our emissions reductions targets, but to decarbonize our economy and grow the portions that will become future economic drivers. Yeah, there's a, I want to expand a little bit on the, the, the point you made earlier about the, the fact that for the Americans, uh, industry and reshoring industry manufacturing is the is the primary focus, and emissions reduction is the secondary focus. And you can sell policies like the Inflation Reduction Act that attract investment, create jobs, build plants, build supply chains. That you know that's economic policy. You can you can sell that. A lot easier than you can selling, yeah, you know, carbon. I mean, look at how the political opposition to to the uh, consumer carbon price in Canada has been a tough sell, and it's you know, and it even in the the industrial carbon tax has been a bit of a tough sell. So, I I, th I think that's a that's a key difference between the two. So, that brings us to car carbon contracts for a difference, which is. A tie, which is a, a program aimed at industrial emitters. Could you explain what that is, please? Absolutely. So Canada, as you know, has a series of industrial carbon prices. Some are provincially run, some are federally run. They have been on the books, um, well, in Alberta's case, since 2007, survived six premiers. So there's actually you know, pretty stable, solid consensus around industrial carbon pricing in Canada, and particularly in, in Alberta. The challenge right now is that you know, as these new low carbon projects come online and we are facing you know, a, a series of uncertainties in these markets, there's a real challenge with ensuring that the, the carbon price will continue to rise, that supply and demand will continue to be in balance. And we are proposing carbon contracts for difference at Clean Prosperity as a solution to that. It's essentially functioning as an insurance policy or would function as an insurance policy that guarantees these holders of credits that they will be worth a certain amount in a given year and that they can actually count on that revenue. We've done some calculations and some modeling over the course of the year um, to show exactly what carbon contracts for difference could do for low carbon industry in Canada. And then we, we find that when stacked on top of the investment tax credits proposed in the 2023 federal budget, and a bunch of other provincial programs, carbon contracts for difference can actually be the tipping point for a lot of these low carbon investments that are 
that want to make final investment decisions, but just don't have the certainty that we need. And we think carbon contracts for difference is a very clean and straightforward way to lean into the policy approach that Canada has decided to go with, which is carbon pricing. Now, uh, carbon contracts for difference were promised last year by the federal government, and then they were in the March federal budget. And we still haven't got this done. And we're starting to see representatives of various industrial groups like oil and gas, cement, steelmaking, saying, look, if you don't, you got to get it done in the next you know, quarter or two, because we're, we're losing investment. And it's going to get only going to get worse. So, and I, I was reading a Globe and Mail piece uh, that said that the the problem, the holdup appears to be the finance department, because the industry wants uh, they want uh, higher prices guaranteed in the contract than than what sorry industry wants higher prices than what the finance department wants to give them, and the number of years that they would qualify. Industry wants more than finance is willing to give. And this just seems it's the Canadian way again. Here we are, you know, mired in squabbling about, about the details, you know, bending over to pick up pennies while we walk over dollars uh, uh, once again. Yeah, so there are certainly some challenges left to overcome, um, but it's clear that there is appetite for this in the federal government. Um, we are of the view that the provinces should really want this program, and we are encouraging the provinces to speak up. We just released a new report called the Low Carbon Playbook, which looks specifically at the case in Alberta, and we show that Alberta would benefit tremendously from a, a CCFD program. There is still uh, a bit of work to be done underneath the hood, but we agree on, I think, the big, the big picture. Um, of, of carbon contracts for difference, their value to the Canadian economy, specifically for first-of-kind low-carbon investments. And I think we will see some progress in the coming months. Well, you okay, so what got my attention in that comment is, you know, the federal government wants the provinces to get on board and, and you want the provinces to get on board. And the provinces these days... Uh, don't want to get on board much with the federal government. And so even though we're all in agreement that contracts for difference are a good thing, it sounds like they're still squabbling. And here we are, you know, long after we've all agreed that this is a good thing, uh, under the hood, we haven't figured out how to do this. There's still stuff to do. And is maybe is this just baked in the cake? I mean, Canadian federalism is really decentralized. And very often you get into squabbles like this between the federal government and the provincial and the provinces because it's 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 a jurisdictional issue. And sometimes it's clear cut which government has jurisdiction, but often it isn't. And we've got this federal cooperative principle that the courts operate under, where you know, on a lot of policies, they expect the the two levels of government to cooperate, and they don't for for political reasons or other reasons. Is that what's holding this up? Yeah, I'm just not sure it's entirely high enough on the radar of, of the provinces. We are trying to call attention to that. Um, and the low carbon playbook does call attention to that. Um, I think there's also a, a challenge that these programs, these provincial carbon pricing systems are run by the provinces. The provinces have ultimate control over 
the balance of credits in these systems and the ultimate trajectory of, of the carbon price. Alberta, in its emissions reduction and energy development plan, which it released earlier this year, lays out a carbon price path of $170 per ton by 2030. So that's actually an area where Alberta agrees with Ottawa. And so we're saying, Alberta, if you agree with that price path and you want the market to work effectively, you should be involved in a carbon contracts for difference program. You can embrace the federal program and work with them to ensure that the, the details under the hood are um, to Alberta's benefit. You could co-develop the program, put a little financial skin in the game, or you could just go out and do this program yourself. And we actually show that you know, the carbon capture incentive program that Alberta is considering um, is probably not necessary if you go with con carbon contracts for difference and the overall fiscal cost of contracts for difference would be far less than relying on these subsidies that don't really give much consideration to the difference in carbon capture costs across these different types of sectors, right? Alberta should not be giving the same amount to a carbon capture project for a cement facility as it should to a carbon capture project for gas-fired electricity as it should be for an oil sands project. And carbon contracts for difference can be sensitive to those, those differences in a way that a broad subsidy program cannot. We'll get into the nitty gritty of what Alberta is proposing in, in a minute. But look at the three examples that you gave. And I have to point out that I have been a harsh critic of that emissions reduction and clean energy development strategy, because it's not a strategy for the most part. What it is, is a, a brochure for the oil and gas industry in Alberta. And uh, Premier Smith was at the World Petroleum Congress a couple of uh, three weeks ago or so. And I went to a press conference and, and asked some questions. And it's very clear, very clear that there the Alberta is is wedded to the OPEC view of the energy system, which is that the uh, demand for oil is going to rise to 116 barrels a day, sorry, 116 million barrels a day by 2045, and it's going to be a very long and slow decline. And energy transition for that government means primarily uh, lowering the emissions of oil and gas production. It doesn't mean clean energy industry. She made that abundantly clear. That was the dominant narrative of that con. con of that uh, event, and she was a leader in that. And so I'm not, so, but that that being said, so CCUS, Carbon Capture Utilization and Storage, then plays a big part of reducing those emissions. Pathways Alliance, the Oil Sands Trade Association wants it in a big way. So I am not surprised that the, the provincial government wants to throw more money at this in an unnecessary way. So make, I don't know. Uh, can you explain what exactly it is that the Alberta government is proposing? So I think what is clear is that something else is needed to get some of these carbon capture projects over the finish line. So the federal government has committed uh, to developing an investment tax credit worth 50% of eligible capital investments for carbon capture projects. Alberta is essentially developing a program that would stack on top of that. We're not exactly sure how big it's going to be, but it's the province's petrochemical incentive program offers a 12% ITC. So that might give you a sense of the, the range that they're thinking about. 
Um, so you would have for various projects, the carbon capture credit at the federal level, a carbon capture credit at the provincial level, plus potentially other ITCs that the federal government has developed. Um, and we are suggesting that these, the stacking of these um, doesn't have to go so far. If you actually lean into carbon contracts for difference, you can do away with some, some of those. Um, but currently the plan is basically to, um, yeah. In, uh, well, this basically, uh, that, that proposal gives the oil sands companies, for example, exactly what Pathways Alliance has said. They've said that the, the plan to decarbonize by 2050, uh, that decarbonize the oil sands uh, projects, which is where most of Canada's oil comes from, um, is going to cost $75 billion. And they had asked last year the, fe the federal government for $50 billion, so basically two-thirds. And they say that, that CCUS will be responsible for two-thirds of those emissions reductions. So it, essentially, they say, give us $50 billion bucks, and that covers the cost of the CCUS, which... I think is is outrageous because here we are investing in we're on the we're, I in my opinion we're the International Energy Agency is right we're going to see peak oil demand in 2030 we'll probably see demand destruction starting mid, mid 2030 somewhere in around there and here we are uh, going to spend you know 50 billion dollars just on the oil sands to, to lock in hydrocarbon infrastructure. And when these companies are making, you know, record profits. And so essentially the, the, the tax, the incentive uh, tax incentives that, that you described, federal plus provincial plus provincial gives, gives the industry exactly what it asked for at a time when maybe we should be thinking about having industry pay more of the bill, not less of the bill. Well, your comments, Markham, just take me back to the the fundamental point that Canada lacks a coherent industrial strategy. Um, a modern industrial strategy does need to go beyond tax credits and even contracts for difference. Alberta and the country in general, they require new mechanisms. They need to co-develop these goals and targets with industry, with Indigenous communities, with labour. We need specific sectoral economic targets. We need to identify where the bottlenecks are in supply chains. We need to look at where the puck is going, in other words. Um, you know, the, the Emissions Reduction and Energy Development Plan in Alberta um, is just that. It's a plan. It is not a strategy. It needs to be built upon. It needs additional detail. It needs deep technical work. Um, and it should be scrutinized very, very closely. You know, we, we should not just be subsidizing our way out of this. We can take better advantage of the policy tools that we have in front of us. And in our minds, that's carbon pricing. We believe that the, the tier system in Alberta should be the centerpiece of this industrial strategy and that it can you know, not only help existing projects decarbonize, existing sectors decarbonize, but it can also act as an instrument to draw in new investment. And if it has contract for difference underpinning it, then it'll be even stronger. Well, okay, let's talk about tier. Uh, technology incentives for energy re emissions reduction, I think is the acronym. Uh, so one of the criticisms of TIER, uh, and this goes back to when it was set up under the NDP and R Rachel Notley, uh, is it employs output-based pricing, which essentially, you know, we won't get into the me mechanics of it, but, but gives for those 
companies that are facing competition uh, from outside the country and where there's a, a potential for carbon leakage, you don't want to subset it. You don't want to have industry move to another jurisdiction and set up and, and emit there. So you give them a discount to stay here, but it's, it's well, well, with still sending a signal to reduce their emissions. But they get like an 80 or 90% discount. And we're giving that to the oil sands. So the oil sands company, some of them pay, you know, instead of the, the carbon prices at $65 a ton and they're paying a buck or two or three on a barrel of oil which when oil is a hundred dollars a barrel, $90 a barrel, they don't even blink at that. It's, it's a rounding error. And I think that the oil sand should never have been given output, uh, never should have come under output based pricing because it can't get up and move. It's, it's literally stuck there. No, there's nowhere else that an oil sands company, the only other place with oil sands deposits is Venezuela. And I don't think Suncor, CNRL, Imperial Oil, and Sonovas are going to, you know, pick up and move to Venezuela over the carbon pricing. Yeah, so, I'm not going to. I'm not going to sit here and say tier can't be improved, and <laughs> the stringency <laughs> of the program is certainly something that we are working at very hard at Clean Prosperity. It's it's not strong enough right now to get us to where we need to go in 2030 and beyond, but the basic architecture is good. Yes, that's that's it. It, it. The basic architecture is good. The application of that architecture is woefully inadequate, in my opinion. But I want to uh, zero in on something else you said, which is you gave some examples of you know the application of the industrial of co contracts for difference in, in Alberta, the oil sands, cement, petrochemicals. Nowhere in there is, and and nowhere in aside from hydrogen. And the only reason the Alberta government likes hydrogen is because they want it to be made out of natural gas. Okay, so there's a there's a, a hydrocarbon tie-in, but there's there's nothing in there about clean energy industry in the way that the Americans are doing it. It is essentially a doubling down on 20th century energy sources. That's a problem. And what can the federal government do about it? It's provincial jurisdiction. They kind of have to you know, do this dance with Alberta to, as best they can to get them on board. And while Alberta is the most egregious example of that, it's kind of like that with Saskatchewan and with Ontario and Manitoba, some of the Atlantic provinces. I mean, this kind of illustrates the problem the federal government has got in, in, in implementing muscular industrial policy. Absolutely. We are a very decentralized federation. We have different regional subcultures, different geographies, different natural resource profiles. Um, it's it speaks to the challenge that, that and the, the size of the of the of the project that Canada has in front of it, um, which is why we call for sector specific approaches. Um, you know, we should be treating strategic assets in unique geographies as a package. Right. Alberta, uh, for example, has abundant pore space for carbon capture. You know, even if you disagree with the merits of carbon capture, that is an objectively true fact. Um, and that pore space is a strategic asset that Alberta should leverage. And you know, an industrial strategy would think about all of these different assets as a coherent whole. Alberta has tremendous solar and wind resources. And every cheap unit of electricity you produce with solar and wind is a unit of natural gas that you do not have to burn. 
it frees up core space, it frees up other assets. So when we talk about developing an industrial strategy, we need to think about all of these different, uh, all the different resources that we have across the country. And Alberta's industrial strategy will look very different from Nova Scotia's industrial strategy. It will look very different from Manitoba's industrial strategy. What we really need the federal government to do is play a coordinating function, right? How do we help all of these different actors and interests talk to one another and actually start rowing the boat forward together? Yeah, and, and it's been trying to do that. It has these uh, natural resource uh, roundtables that it's set up for each one of the, the regions or provinces. And Alberta was one of the last, it finally, it, it's been going on for a couple of years now. And Alberta only agreed to sit down with the government like a month or two ago. You know, they, they did, didn't even want us to get out to talk to them at the table. But I want to bring up a, an example of, again, from Alberta, of poor strategy. So I've done a number of interviews with the folks at the uh, Alberta Innovates who are in the, and I forget the the title, but it's, it's basically in, in the southeast of Calgary, there's a, a research project with uh, three or four companies that where they're taking captured CO2 and using the CO2 as a feedstock, and then they're putting it into cement and they're making materials with it. And we at Energy Media have argued for a long time that... Uh, that hydrocarbons, particularly bitumen, and captured CO2 is the future of the hydrocarbon industry and should be in a should be in Alberta. In fact, when I was covering the Petroleum Congress, uh, the vice president of, of uh, materials for Saudi Aramco led, he moderated a panel in which they talked about the, in, the, the materials transition. We have an energy transition, but we also have a revolution in materials. And and they're working really hard on turning hydrocarbons and other uh, resources into materials, advanced, new advanced materials, lighter and cheaper and, and so on. But here's the point. The CCUS project that the Pathways Alliance is proposing, you would say, well, look at all that CO2. Wouldn't that be a great feedstock for a materials industry in Alberta? That would be a strategic approach. But, but what does the, the, the Pathways Alliance want to do? They want to build their, their CO2 pipeline and, and terminate it north of Cold Lake, which is a little town up on, you know, in the northeast of Alberta, you know, by the Saskatchewan border. It's, a, it's miles away from any place. Instead of taking it down to Edmonton or the, the Fort Saskatchewan area, we've got the industrial heartland complex where you might actually be able to develop some industry that uses CO2 as a feedstock. They're going to bury it up in northern, northeastern uh, Alberta where it's no good to anybody. And this is the right time to be talking through those problems, right? We're we're starting to see these anchor investments pop up. Um, you know, batteries in in eastern Canada, Alberta's looking at hydrogen hubs. These are the right times to be having those conversations. We won't be able to utilize all of the carbon that we capture. Some of it will have to be stored underground. But talking about the best economic uses of carbon, of oil, of natural gas, that's the right conversation to be having right now. Yeah, I, I would agree. And uh, I one of the reasons I find this really frustrating, Brendan, is because at th this podcast was begun a couple of years ago expressly for the purpose of interviewing international experts, people who are not based in Canada. So the US, Europe, Asia Pacific. And we've had a ton of them on and we've interviewed plenty of them for in our video interview series. And 
once you step outside the country, the approach to the energy transition is radically different. Everybody, like in, in finally in the U.S., but in Europe and China and and other Asian countries, they understand that that clean energy industry is the next industrial revolution. They understand that this is the moment in time when you have to you have to make the investments, build the supply chains, put in place the policy and regulatory frameworks, all of that. In Canada, we don't get that. That is not the conversation we're having. And so, I don't know, how do we have the conversation you just said we need to have around, you know, how we're going to use, you know, hydrocarbon feedstocks and so on. We're like a decade behind everybody else. How do we accelerate that conversation? So I think the work is is beginning. It's it's underway. As you say, we are a little bit behind. Many countries, including Canada, were caught flat-footed by the Inflation Reduction Act. But you know, to your point, China has has been anticipating this for for decades now. They have cornered the market on a bunch of clean tech sectors, and it's going to take a lot of work to to unwind. So better late than than never. But we do think that there are a couple of things that we can do in the short term to signal that we are serious about this. And our new report, The Low Carbon Playbook, which focuses exclusively on Alberta, makes three recommendations to that effect. The first is using con carbon contracts for difference, which will send a broad economy-wide signal that low carbon projects can count on carbon credit revenues as a portion of their business proposal. The second is to re-allocate uh, all the revenues that are collected under the tier market towards decarbonization. And this, the third is to develop a modern muscular industrial strategy that actually thinks about all of Alberta's strategic assets as a coherent whole. And as far as actions in the short term, those are the best three ideas we could come up with to help get the ball rolling a little faster. And they're good ideas. Don't get me wrong. Um, when I interviewed Jonathan Wilkinson, one of the things he said is we, we know what what industrial policy means to cabinet anyway, if not the rest of the government. He said it means three things, carbon pricing, regulations, and subsidies. And that's not the American approach. The American approach has, because they cannot do carbon pricing. That is never going to go, never going to fly, except for a few places like California with cap and trade. And, and regulations, well, I mean, you know, the federal government, remember President Obama's clean power plan, you know, that immediately was was challenged in court and 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 the and the states by the states and they won because they have the same problem there you know the states are always talking about federal government over federal overreach and so they they challenged it so all that left for biden was subsidies and he said okay all right if that's if that's all we got we're in with both feet and away and the way they went i mean that has a lot to do with why the ira and the other acts are as generous as they are because that's all i got that's the only policy to, lever they can pull um, so, but I'm listening, you know, I listened to your three things that Alberta can do and it was mainly, you know, strategy and, and carbon pricing. What about regulations and, and subsidies? So uh, any ideas on what Alberta can do in those policy areas? So with regulations, it turns out that carbon pricing can actually deliver a lot of what, you know, a lot of the proposed regulations floating out there right now can, can do. And our view 
favoring market-based approaches is to lean into carbon pricing as much as possible, right? A, a, uh, a cap on oil and gas becomes unnecessary if the carbon price is, is strong enough, and we would prefer that type of, of approach. Um, we are okay, also- But, but I, I want to jump I want to jump in here, Brendan, because the the very often we talk about the oil and gas emissions cap that the federal government has promised and is working on, and, and we don't talk about the mechanisms the federal government put into its discussion paper to, to implement that, which is carbon pricing. There are only two options they provided, and one is to is to uh, is to raise, get rid of the discounts that I talked about earlier uh, in the industrial emitters carbon tax, and the other is to put on a, a particular cap and trade uh, on oil and gas. So, I, I mean, it seems like the the oil and gas emissions cap is very consistent with what you're arguing for. Well, we would like to see a trading mechanism. Uh, in, involved as well. Um, we want to see the lowest cost emissions reduced first, um, but we don't. We don't necessarily think that it makes sense to single oil and gas out necessarily. A stronger carbon price would deal with a lot of the same challenges in a much more economically efficient way. Okay, I want to introduce a, an idea here that has been festering uh, in in my mind for for months now. Three years ago might have been 2021, I interviewed uh, Dr. Danny Cullenwood from uh, from Stanford about a book that he had co-authored where he argued they like industrial policy, or sorry, they like, you know, I mean, they like carbon pricing, I guess, is the argument. But there's so much political opposition to it that as, as elegant as it is in, in theory, and maybe perhaps as well as it might work in practice, there's so much political opposition to it that it blunts its effectiveness as a policy instrument. And so they said, look, carbon pricing can't do it alone. We need regulations and industrial policy, which is ironically is exactly what the Canadian government is doing. And so I know Clean Prosperity is a big fan of carbon pricing. I, I get it. I've interviewed Michael Bernstein, your executive director, I don't know how many times over the last you know three, four years. And he's made that point very elegantly in those interviews, or eloquently. But I think Cullenwood, Cullenwood is on to something. And so is that a legitimate criticism, do you think? So carbon pricing cannot do it alone. There will be sectors that carbon pricing cannot cover, places where the signal is not strong enough. And places where you know there are other benefits that may justify additional policies on top of of carbon pricing. Um, you are uh, correct that you know there has been some political uh, talk, political conversation heated sometimes around around the retail carbon price. But industrial carbon pricing has actually survived successive governments in multiple provinces. We think it's pretty safe. It's here to stay. And our interest is in making sure that it works as well as it possibly can. And in our mind, that requires you know, higher stringency over time, paired with a broad-based program of contracts for difference, that any sector that's participating in the respective carbon market can qualify for if they are interested. Yeah, I understand how carbon pricing might help to decarbonize the oil sands or the petrochemical plants north of Edmonton or cement manufacturing. I get that. What I don't understand is how 
carbon industrial carbon pricing is going to attract a battery plant or critical mineral uh, exploration in in Alberta or you know uh, and this is I, I I've interviewed experts on this and they say yeah Alberta's got critical minerals and what it should do is it should because the bottleneck right now is not the minerals it's the processing and smelting and refining into battery metals. That's the real bottleneck here because China, you know, owns about 80% of it. So if you mine or if you extract lithium from oil and gas uh, production brine in Alberta, you got to ship it to to uh, China to get processed and then ship it back to make, you know, batteries in, in Ontario. So Alberta should be doing that. But I don't understand how carbon pricing, you know, would, would make, would help companies make decisions to invest in the refining and processing of battery metals in Alberta. No, you are you are quite right that carbon pricing cannot do it all. It will not cover all sectors, although a lot of mines are subject to carbon pricing. Um, that is, I think, part of the broader conversation that we need to have about industrial strategy. You're starting to see Canada has made what you might consider anchor investments in battery manufacturing, but the upstream still needs to sort itself out and the downstream needs to sort itself out well, right? The batteries actually need to go in things to be useful. So uh, there is there is some work ahead of us. Carbon pricing certainly can't do it all, but it can do a lot. We looked at uh, different technology classes that carbon pricing could uh, play a role in, in attracting investment for in the low carbon playbook. And we looked at low carbon fuels, carbon management technologies, and electricity. And these are critical inputs and feedstocks across a range of sectors. So even if carbon pricing, a functional carbon market isn't necessarily improving our, our smelting capacity, it can help us develop lower carbon inputs into developing that capacity. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I, I think that's a, a, a valid point. Um, I was thinking while you were talking, I was thinking about the, the pro how the provinces are approaching this. And I have to say, BC and Quebec get it. They really do. They're big hydro provinces. You know, they're their uh, their power grids are like 95 or 98 percent you know emissions free because of the, the and they they produce really low cost electricity they're they're planning on expanding that and it's part of their their clean energy industrial strategy BC uh, I, I get email uh, press releases all the time about the various programs they've got to support that Quebec's very active uh, Ontario was completely oblivious could couldn't have cared less. And all of a sudden, you know, a year, year and a half ago, uh, battery plant investments started to pop up. And Premier Doug Ford went, hey, hang on a second. You mean we're going to spend $5 billion on a, on a plant and I can stand up in front of that and get get my picture in the in the newspaper? Okay, now I'm on board. And never mind that he's not, he doesn't like wind and solar and there's a whole bunch of other stuff. But it's it's that's the kind of, aside from those two big provinces, this is the kind of mentality we have in in Canada, and I keep coming back to this, Brendan, because it just the the provinces are so central to this. As you the point you you made that point you know many times already in this this interview, but boy, if we can't get them on board, we are going to miss out. Uh, this is going to be like the 1920s. You know, I re I remember I did this as part of my graduate work 40 years ago. There was a plethora of small tractor makers, manufacturers, 
combine manufacturers, farm implements that were designed around the internal combustion engine and, you know, that whole shift to the internal combustion engine and, and, uh, and cheap petroleum. Uh, and we missed that. All of them disappeared except maybe like Massey Harris, you know, one or one or two big ones. And, and we're going to miss it again. We're going to miss it. We're, we're going to, we're going to watch all of that, that investment opportunity, economic opportunity bleed down into the U S and, and we're going to be the hewers of wood and drawers of water that we've always been. And that's what I fear. Yeah, I mean, if we if we zoom out and actually take a look at what we're doing here, we are talking about compressing an entire industrial revolution into a single generation. Yes. And it is early days. And those mistakes that we make in those early days will compound and amplify over time. So the time to move is now. Um, we think carbon contracts for difference is a, a key piece of that. Um, and there's there's a lot of work to do to develop a coherent industrial strategy to ensure we don't miss opportunities as they arise. I mean, beneath the Inflation Reduction Act is a ton of work in material science and physics and chemistry and all of these technologies that are going to start to come online in the coming years. Canada needs to be ready to take those. We cannot mimic the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. We just don't have the fiscal firepower to do so. But we can be ready when those technologies become cost effective and competitive with uh, you know, some of the technologies that we are currently using across our economy. Yeah, we have all kinds of opportunities because we have smart people and and uh, who are working on on uh, you know various uh, technologies and in clean industry like uh, carbon upcycle in Calgary would be one that I've I've interviewed and uh, and they talk about the difficulty of getting you know the kind of some kind of you know support financial support we 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 have a problem in the uh in our technology uh you know taking things off the lab bench putting getting them out in demonstration projects and then pilot projects and scaling them up there's a valley of death in there where money just is not available and you know the federal government could step in anyway i digress the the uh, I, I have one final question for you, and that is, I, you know, analysts like you are you talk to a lot of people. You talk to you know the 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 folks in the federal uh, finance department. You talk to Alberta government uh, people who are working on these files behind the scenes, uh, without you know giving away any secrets or telling any tales. <laughs> you know, are you seeing a shift in the way people are thinking about this? I think so. I think you know, the Inflation Reduction Act jolted us many people out of their sleep, so to speak. Um, I actually think that the the case you brought up with Premier Ford and batteries is is instructive. Ford became premier in June 2018, as I recall. So he's been on the job for a little over five years. And the the battery space in that time has shifted tremendously. And I think the progressive conservatism in Ontario just woke up to the economic reality of it. It is an enormous market opportunity, and they didn't want to miss out. And I'm hopeful that more governments uh, across Canada and beyond, for that matter, will start to see the economics of these projects as the driving force behind them. We don't necessarily have to agree on the objective of reducing emissions, although that would be nice to actually seize some of these economic opportunities. Um. Two years ago, uh, I interviewed uh, Bloomberg NEF's uh, head of mining and metals, and uh, he told we were talking about Canada, and I said to him, and I, I 
tell this anecdote a lot. So I apologize to listeners who have heard it six times before. But I, I, we were talking about Alberta, and I said, you know, well, surely Alberta's got a decade, right? I mean, you know, to get organized and and put in place the regular the regulations that are required and the finance subsidy programs, whatever their industrial clean energy industrial stretch. You got they have some time, and uh, but at least to twenty thirty. Goodness gracious! And he said, no. He said you have two to five years, and the reason for that is because while we were sleeping, while our provincial governments were napping and tearing down wind turbines and and ripping up solar farms in in Ontario and putting you know solar and wind moratoriums uh, on in in Alberta, uh, other countries that are much more hungry than we are and much more aggressive, they've been working on this for like five years, ten years. Places like Malaysia and Vietnam and Indonesia, they want this. They really get it. Even Saudi Arabia, you know, they got Saudi Aramco. They're investing in hydrogen. They're investing in solar, and we don't get we've been so privileged for so long and so comfortable that we just think status quo is going to go on forever and meanwhile the ground is shifting beneath us and the global energy system is being absolutely transformed and most of the energy that that we export is is the will be the target will be the victim of that shift which is oil and gas and uh we are just so unprepared for for what's taking place anyway um i i make this rant on this podcast all the time so my, i'm sure there are some listeners who are rolling their eyes as i make it but i so i'm going to stop but i'll i'll give you the last word here yeah i mean it brings to mind that hemingway quote about bankruptcy it happens gradually <laughs> and then suddenly um, that, and i think that's, that's i think that's what we're seeing here but i do think that you know canada and alberta uh, have a lot of what we need to compete in a de decarbonizing world. What we need now is a strategy to leverage all of those competitive advantages. And we think that carbon markets can be a key piece of that and should and be a key piece of that. On that note, we'll end the interview. Thank you very much, Brent. Thank you, Markham.